You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jonathan Carl is the chief White House correspondent for ABC News. He's the president of the White House Correspondents Association. His new book is Front Row at the Trump Show. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Great. Thank you for having me. This is an amazing book, and it's an important book in this time when understanding the facts of our the world around us are literally life and death decisions for Americans. It's the difference between wearing a mask and being intubated. And I think one of the things you do very early on in this book is to describe to us what you feel is important about reporting. And, and let me read this from the book. There is a crucial role for reporters and news organizations who strive for objectivity and balance. Our opinions, and we all have opinions, should be irrelevant. Even when the person you are covering treats you unfairly or brands you disgusting or a traitor or a fake, a reporter should strive to treat him or her fairly. Even if you personally find the policies of a president repugnant, a reporter should report the facts and leave the judgments to others. And I'd like you to talk about how that idea informs both your reporting and the writing of this book. Well, it's, it's a it's a central theme. I mean, for, you know, first and foremost, I wanted to write this book to tell the story of what I have witnessed. Uh, I, I mined my notebooks. I uh, went back and I spoke to uh, the, the people that were uh, involved in the major events of the past four years that I was covering to find out what I may not have known what was going on at the time. So it's a story. It's an extraordinary story. We have never seen a president like this. We have never, uh, I don't think there's been a situation where a reporter has had the kind of relationship with a president uh, that I have had with Donald Trump. I've known him for 26 years under extraordinarily unusual circumstances. I wanted to tell that story. But in telling that story, um, a, a, a theme, a central theme is the importance of journalism that is fact-based journalism that strives to be to borrow a phrase that actually fox news used to use as its tagline fair and balanced and it is i think first of all we haven't always had that in our country you know if you go back uh you know the time james madison was writing the uh the the, the first amendment uh most of the i mean virtually all of the papers were partisan papers um they were they were tied to the federalist party they were tied um to the uh, democrat republicans so, uh, you know, it, but but for the past century and a quarter or so in, in, in this country, we have we have had a crucial tradition established of 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 uh, of news that may not achieve the objective of being objective, uh, but strives to be so. And it is especially important now in this time um, with Donald Trump in the White House to, to, Donald Trump is somebody who has effectively declared war on 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 the free press in this country. Uh, called us, as as you read, enemies of the people, fake news, and all of that. But the other thing that he has uh, said uh, over and over again is a phrase 
that was that I first heard used by Steve Bannon in the in the in the in the first week of the Trump White House. The media is the opposition party. That is what Steve Bannon, who at that point was his chief strategist, uh, said. Trump immediately grabbed onto that to that label, and he calls the press the opposition party. And we cannot fall into that. We cannot uh, appear like the opposition party. Uh, if we do, then our efforts or my efforts as a journalist to uh, inform the public, to uh, report on what is happening in a fact-based way uh, will be tarnished and people will see me as just another political operator. And unfortunately in this country, many do. And that's something we have to deal with and we have to uh, address and, 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 and try to you know, dig our way out of. Uh, but if we are seen as the opposition party, then a story on the front page of a major newspaper or uh, a story uh, on a on a network newscast uh, is seen by many as no no different than a, than a statement released by uh, the, the the spokesperson of a political party, the chair, the you know the press secretary for the RNC or the DNC. That is terrible. That cannot be. It undermines uh, the, the the ability of people to. Um, to, to, to gather facts and make their own decisions. You know, the way you write about your first uh, meeting with Donald Trump is really interesting. It's almost like an imprinting experience for you. And you write, I think, very tellingly that Trump loved your idea. You are covering the uh, secret highway of uh, Lisa, Pre uh, Lisa Presley and Michael Jackson uh, at the Trump Hotel. And Trump loved that idea not because uh, the story was a big story about people everybody cared about, but because you made it a story about him. And that's a key theme throughout this book. This is not a presidency uh, uh, about the United States. It's a presidency about Donald Trump. I first met Donald Trump in 1994 and what you are describing. Um, I was a young, very, very junior reporter in New York City for the New York Post. And what, and I, I've spent a fair amount of time going back over that first meeting. I, I wrote several stories about it because it was big news in the New York Post. As you mentioned, Michael Jackson had just secretly married uh, Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis Presley's daughter. I mean, this was like a huge story. Um, and and I cold called him. I just called him out of the blue. Um, didn't know if I would actually get through to him, but I, I just, you know, I, I, I got him. I got his first his, his secretary and I said, I want to do a story about why the most famous newlyweds in the world uh, decided to effectively start their honeymoon at Trump Tower. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, he loved it. And he brought me over. I spent about an hour with him running around Trump Tower. He showed me the ins and outs of the whole place and showed me where Lisa Marie and Michael were staying, talked to their bodyguards, the whole, the whole all nine yards. Um, but what is striking to me as I look back at that moment is how little Donald Trump has changed and yet how much everything around him has changed. Because back then, he was the same guy. The big story was Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley. My story, as you mentioned, gave him the opportunity to make that story really a story about Donald Trump, which is which was what my pitch was. And I was just kind of like throwing stuff at the wall. I, I just thought we'd try to do a story here. I mean, I knew this was you know, the big story that day in New York. And I was like, I'm going to try to get a different angle on it. 
uh, which is what we try to do as, as, as journalists. But, but that is, that is where he is now. It's just that the stakes have so dramatically changed back then. He was the flamboyant real estate developer, the ultimate salesman, you know, the master of the art of the deal. Uh, he was a showman and, but, but, you know, I mean, if he was exaggerating about things, if he was, as he always was, that that was his brand. I mean, and I've got lots of interesting stuff from him back then, you know, uh, talking about how uh, creating illusions, he said at one point, is something we must do to a certain extent. Yes, if you're like, if you're trying to sell real estate, trying to, you know, convince the city to approve a big project, if you're trying to like, you know, uh, pr- promote your, your, your brand, your casinos. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you exaggerate, you, you, you puff up a little bit, but when you're president of the United States, it's entirely different set of facts. Your responsibility is not just what is happening, uh, at Trump tower, uh, or at the, uh, Taj Mahal, uh, casino in Atlantic city. It is, a global pandemic. It is a nuclear threat from North Korea. It is now we're seeing, you know, uh, civil unrest in American cities and the credibility of what the president says is much more important, obviously, than the credibility of what a guy, you know, uh, on, on Fifth Avenue at Trump Tower says. Um, but he is the same guy. And I think that he proceeds in many ways in exactly uh, the, the, the same way uh, that he did back then. And that leads to the, the title of the book, The Front Row at the Trump Show, which, which you have. Um, and that's how he sees it now, too, isn't it? Oh, there's no question it's how he sees it. And, and, and I, I, I write, you know, and, and some people have um, said, you know, how can you, you know, say this is the Trump show or you, you know, you're, you're belittling or you're, you know, you're either belittling. Some people on, on the right would say you're belittling the president. Some people on the left say you're, you know, not taking the threat as seriously. What, what the title is very specific. This is Donald Trump's vision. And that's what I'm trying to explain. He is the creator the executive producer, the chief publicist, and the star of the show. He controls all of the levers. He, he reads the reviews. He argues with the critics and the reviewers. He craves their approval. When he doesn't get it, he attacks them viciously. But five minutes later, we'll court them again in hopes that he gets a, a, a better review. He talks about his ratings or in some cases his, the size of his crowds. He views this as every – you know he, he's programming for this show. He wants to maintain people's interest, something which he does a very good job of by the way. Um, and even during the coronavirus task force uh, briefings, which he for for several weeks was, of course, having every single day. Um, That was the ultimate, you know, uh, example of the of the Trump show. He literally talked about the ratings and how more people were watching his briefings than watch the season finale of The Bachelor or Monday Night Football. And he was marveling at it. And, you know, we're all thinking, wait a minute, we're talking about a global pandemic here. <laughs> it's not like, you know, but uh, but he, he, he sees it as the show. And I got to tell you, there, there, there's a story in, in, in the book 
about that first meeting mm-hmm. that uh, that Donald Trump had with Barack Obama, uh, and I spent a, I I happened to be there. I was in the Oval Office, the only television uh, reporter, just because it was my turn. To, 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 we, 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 the Oval Office is a very small space. When the press is called in, there's a single television network that that, that represents all the television networks. It's called called the Pool Reporter. There's some wire. Uh, reporters as well, Associated Press, and there's um, and there's the photographers. And I, so I happen to be the television reporter in there when those two men met for the first time. So I described that scene, which is, again, one of these just defining moments, I think, of, of, of our of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I but what I also do is Trump came in with his closest and most loyal uh team members um these were the people that were at the campaign at the very beginning hope hicks uh was there jared kushner was there dan scavino who runs his twitter account and instagram facebook was there um uh keith schiller was there who was his personal security detail these were these were like the only people that were present at the creation and they were there uh when they all made their first visit ever to the white house and while the president was meeting one-on-one with barack obama uh hope hicks was meeting with the communications director uh for uh, uh, uh for president obama and i I, you know, I went, I interviewed, I went back and t- I was there, but I went back and talked to everybody that was present to try to reconstruct the minute by minute of this incredible day. But what, what Hope Hicks says to Jen Psaki, Obama's communications director is, how do you make sure that every press release you put out, that everything that comes out uh, gets to the president so he can approve it? And of course she laughed because the president doesn't get involved in, you know, looking at press releases, you know, unless it's something, I mean, it's like... You know, this stuff happens all the time. He's got he's worried about other things. He has people that he trusts that, that you know is going to get the message out. And um, but with Donald Trump, that it, that's the way it works. He he controls every everything that is put out by that White House. I think one of the most fascinating and important moments um, in the book is it happened when you met him. I think in 2014 at, at the site of the former federal post office in Washington, D.C. And this comes back all the time, and it's so fascinating because he will say the most terrible things about you and then turn around on a dime and talk about how much he appreciates what you did for them. And then, of course, when he describes what you did for him, it's not at all what happened. It's so amazing, isn't it? By the way, so um, yes, and, and what's interesting is he also conflates two different interviews. Um, oh. So I, I, I interviewed him um, at the old post office, which has now been transformed at the Trump International Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, I did this in 2014, and I did it because I had actually done a series of stories for ABC about how the federal government, I considered a real kind of scandal of waste the federal government um had all of this like prime real estate that was laying fallow um vacant not used because of bureaucratic ineptitude um yeah, all over the country you know the federal government obviously is one of the biggest real estate if not the, the biggest real estate uh owner in in in, in, the, in the country and 
many of the the crown jewels of their collection is is just for one reason or another had had been vacant and the prime example to me was the old post office building which was vacant for nearly a decade almost entirely vacant it is you know you've seen the hotel you it's cuz now now it's operational in its hotel but it is this beautiful building uh, positioned almost exactly at the midpoint between the United States Capitol building and the White House on America's Main Street, Pennsylvania Avenue. And I just was blown away by the fact that that was not being used. So I did a series of stories about it. And eventually, uh, Congress started looking into this issue. They actually held a hearing in the middle of the winter in the old post office building, which had no heating because it had been vacant for so long and it was cold. So the members of the, of the House committee that did this wore heavy heavy coats. <laughs> so I did this whole thing. And then eventually as a result of this uh, outcry, the General Services Administration, which controls federal real estate, put up for bid a 99-year lease uh, to, to you know for somebody to come in and develop the, uh, the old post office and turn it into a hotel. And Trump – surprise, surprise, won the bid, won the contract. So I was obviously interested in the story. So I said, I saw he was coming to Washington. I said, I put in a request. I said, hey, you know, Donald, can we, uh, you know, can we do an interview right there on the construction site? They had just started. They really hadn't done anything yet. It was just a construction site, uh, inside the, uh, in the building. And he was totally into it. And we, we, you know, we, we, we did this interview. It was a nice interview. Um, but um, he was also had been playing, you know, flirting as he often did with possibly looking into running for president. Nobody in the world thought he was actually going to do it. Um, but he was about to go to Iowa, make a, which was going to be the second trip in the last year or so to Iowa. So I, at the end of the interview, said, by the way, you're not thinking about running for president, are you? You know, and he's like, well, I don't know. I might, you know, I might surprise you. He was like, yeah, no. I, and, I, and I literally say to him, yeah, I would be shocked. And he goes, yeah, you would be, would you? A lot of people would be. And we laugh about it. It's, we're, we're laughing about the idea of him running for president, really. And um, uh, like I said, a very good-natured interview because it's, you know, it's about this construction site and, and this project. Um, now, what he conflates is I a year earlier, I had actually gone out to Iowa with him. It was the very first interview any network uh, reporter did with Donald Trump of the 2016 presidential cycle. He went out to a, a, a forum by a group of evangelicals that had drawn all these other potential presidential candidates. People like Ted Cruz spoke the same day Trump did. I went out and interviewed him there. And we talked a little bit about the presidential, the upcoming presidential campaign. You know, not so much about him running, although we did get into you know what it would take for him to run, but what, he, what his assessment were of the people that were talking about running. And the issues that would be at stake and all this stuff. So um, he conflates those two interviews in his mind as to me being the first person to take seriously the idea of a Trump presidential candidacy. And look, I've always treated him with respect and treated him fairly. And that's true of both of those interviews. But it's come in his mind of like me being the one that really kind of helped – you know, put this on the map. <laughs> he was running, and and he also knows that I took some criticism. Now, not for the old post office interview, which is what he's conflated, but with that first interview in Iowa, 
people like Chuck Todd and others, uh, you know, were criticized me and ABC for giving him any time saying he's never going to run. Don't play the game. He's just trying to promote the apprentice. Why are you doing this? You should ignore him. And, you know, we, we did the interview anyway, and, that, and that's what we did. And, you know, and, and the criticism is fine. That's what you take. But he, he takes this as me. I took criticism kind of on his behalf. So he's brought this up. You see it in the book come up at some really incredible moments where he suddenly starts talking about the story. Do you know he brought it up again just the other day? <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me because given the, the way the book flows, like fluid, it seems like it's this kind of, you know, recurring theme for him. So, but th- this was this was truly remarkable. So, I uh, first of all, a little little bit of background. Um, I had two different members of Congress who had met with the president. This is over. This is about three weeks ago or so, three or four weeks ago. Tell me that they had been in to see the president, and he had my book on his desk. One time it was in the Oval Office on the Resolute. The oh other my. time was in the was in the study off the where he has lunch, uh, right off the the Oval Office. And I was like, "Oh man, what's he going to think of this?" So, um, anyway, so but but I, you know, I I didn't hear anything more. Then he he has an event in the state dining room uh, about uh, you know getting America. Uh, opened again, you know, the economic impact, coronavirus, all that. And he has, he has the congressional leadership there. He has his entire economic team, the Treasury Secretary, uh, you know, his, Larry Kudlow, his chief economic advisor, uh, you know, Kushner's there. They're all, they're all there. And Kevin McCarthy and the Republican leadership. So we come in and I start, you know, the, he does the event and, and I'm, the, I'm the poll reporter. So I start asking him questions. And at one point, he just stops and he says, by the way, I liked your book. <laughs> <laughs> really? He, he said, he said, it kind of surprised me. It was a lot better than I thought it would be. And I mean about me. You know, how's it doing? And I said, oh, it's a bestseller. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, of course. Well, no, bestseller. Congratulations. He's like, I, I've known you a long time. And he's like, and then that interview, that interview at the old post office. <laughs> and then he starts talking in front of. You know, I mean, we're in the middle of the pandemic. We have this greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. And he's like and he's got everybody around. And he just and it's just like as if like he and I are just like at the water cooler uh, reminiscing about this this old interview. I mean, I, I, I just it's wild. The mind boggles. <laughs> I, I, I think and, you know, I as I read this book, I, I love the idea of a book about current news. Because when you watch current news, you watch different reports, and they can, as in depth as they are, they're all discreet. And putting them together in your mind is a little, you know, it's doable. But when you read a book, you get that flow. And you talked about the story. The story in this book is really powerful and important. You have a lot of themes, I think, things that you bring up. And one of my favorite themes in this book is the surreal nature of what's going on. When you're for example, when you're at his for the early time uh, before he's when he's just setting up to run as president, and you go up to his the room in Trump Tower, and you know the room right above is still done up for the Apprentice, <laughs> <laughs> and at times it feels like that's what's playing out in the White House. Yeah. So it's and by the way, I have to say that the last thing I did 
with this book after so you, you know this was this this dominated most of my the past year I, I i really this was my passion project i put everything into this and after i was going through the final revisions the final corrections i had to and i had not really even thought about it because i'm writing the you know i'm doing, doing my, my the, the book uh the my editor said okay we need to do the photo section i hadn't really like put much thought into it so i i started diving and i've got all these incredible photographs many of which that i I have taken uh as this has all played out some of which others took and sent to me um that 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 shows me and it as this was happening um but the 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 photos i think the photo section and i i I did longer than usual captions and i put it's a longer it's a more involved photo section as you know uh oh it's really nice and but but the um, I went back and looked at the photographs that I took uh, of that Trump campaign office in Trump Tower. Um, this was in I think the date was September 1st was actually when I took these pictures that are in the book. I was there obviously several times, but but it was so so he had he was now the front runner in all of the polls. He had been through uh, that first big Fox News debate uh, in in Cleveland. And he was, you know, he was he was ahead in virtually every single poll, um, all the national polls. I think I think that I write that because I met with Trump at this, this meeting, of course, and he knows he knew he followed those polls closer than anybody. And there was a single poll that had him tied in Iowa with Ben Carson. <laughs> Other than that, he was <laughs> he was winning everywhere. And um, so I, I, I went to this. I, I, I went up. I went to meet with Hope Hicks and I wanted to see their campaign operation. And instead, of course, they whisked me up to see Donald Trump on the 26th floor in his office, which was, you know, it was good. I went and met with him and I was like, come on, I want to go down and show me what you guys are doing. And I went down, the campaign headquarters office was on the fifth floor and it was, there were no people down there because the the whole campaign was like five people. So, you know, like I, like I mentioned, those people that I saw later, you know, in the, at the white house after the election, um, when when Trump met with Obama, it's it's you know Scavino, Corey Lewandowski, uh, it was um, you know Hope Hicks, a guy named Johnny McEntee, who was his you know uh, it was basically just a couple years out of college, um, uh, former quarterback at UConn, uh, who was helping him you know with his planning his 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 trips, um, but I but the, the place was empty, but it looked like a campaign office you might see on elm street in manchester new hampshire before the new hampshire primary concrete walls no gold no um uh, marble like you see everywhere else on trump tower exposed concrete walls uh folding tables like card tables that were where you would normally see people stuffing envelopes you know in, in a campaign but nobody's there um and McEntee ends up like showing me around and it just it, it occurred to me you know, campaign posters on the walls is it looked like a set. You know, when you go and you, and, and you see a movie set and the movie's not being shot at that moment. So it's empty, <laughs> but, you know, the actors come in and, you know, it's going to look great. Um, it looked like a campaign. It looked like a movie set for a, for a campaign headquarters, you know, <laughs> And then McAtee said, come upstairs. And we walked upstairs. And you're right. There it was. I took these and I showed these pictures too. The set of The Apprentice because that's where he shot The Celebrity Apprentice was on the floor above. And they (laughs) – and it was unclear whether or not, you know, maybe he would go back to that. So it was still there. It it was just kind of like, you know, they they had cloths over over that big 
uh, conference table. They had, you know, some of the stuff was boarded up a little bit, but it was all there. It was like, there there's the actual movie set, and here's the thing that looks like a movie set down below. And, you know, now, of course, he's at the White House, and he uh, – I can't tell you how often he mar- – he loves – he loves the, the White House. I mean everybody goes in that place does. But he – he loves to show off the Oval Office to anybody that's there. Uh, I know, I mean, who wouldn't, right? But, but with him, there's a certain, glee, there's just a, there's a glee about uh, uh, about it. I mean, he, and you can tell he's like, this is because there's a phrase he often loves to use: central casting. You know, like he likes. He says this about Pence. He thinks Pence looks like the guy you would cast as the vice president. You know, if you were doing a movie. So he's at a central casting. So in, in the White House, it looks it's a great set. It's the greatest set in the world for a political uh, show, isn't it? <laughs> I guess so. You, you know, <laughs> uh, one of the other themes that uh, is, I think, central to this presidency and also to what's happening to American news and America's understanding of itself, the lies. And it was interesting, as I thought about it, it took a while for news in general to call the lies lies and to understand that as part of what was going on. So could you talk about the theme of the lies that Trump tells, why he tells them, what's happening? And because what Trump is, I think, really interested in is the story. It doesn't have to be a true story. It just has to be a great story. Yeah. He, he, the, the, the truth is not something that concerns him very much, and it never has. So I, I tell this story about Rick Riley, the legendary sports writer, who went to do a story on him for Sports Illustrated years ago at one of his golf courses. And Riley's there, you know, with, with Trump. There he's having some kind of a golf tournament and, and he's doing doing a piece on Trump. And Trump is taking him around and introducing him to everybody as the president of Sports Illustrated or the publisher of Sports Illustrated. It kind of goes back and forth. And, you know, Riley, you know, a couple of times kind of corrects him, saying, like, I'm, I'm a columnist, I'm not a <laughs> you know. And so 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 finally uh, Riley pulls him aside and says, Why do you keep lying about me? Um, and he said, why do you keep calling me president of Sports Illustrated? And he said, because it sounds better. <laughs> it just sounds better. And so he lies for all different reasons. It's not always malicious. Sometimes he wants to make whoever he's with feel better. So he'll talk about how wonderful you are, um, exaggerating many, many, many times over uh, about how great he is. Sometimes it's to make himself feel better. Sometimes it's to make the story sound better. Um, he lies for all different reasons, but again, now it really matters. So, um, as a reporter in the Trump era, you have to spend uh, you know, a good chunk of your time, um, correcting the president. And I did an interview with him, uh, backstage at a, at a rally right before the midterm elections where I, I had dug up this promise he made. He didn't, he, he didn't say it much, but, but, but he said during his campaign, the 2016 campaign, I promise you, I, I promise I will always tell you the truth. And it's like, it's one of the great forgotten <laughs> Trump promises. So, so I said, now you can't say that. And cause he had just said a few whoppers like that day. And I was like, I mean, like, so what, I mean, can, can you tell us if you've, you, you can't tell me you've, 
kept that promise, can you? And he said to me something that was amazing. He said, well, you know, when I can, I try to tell the truth. <laughs> and it reminded me, I had a great friend of mine and uh, still, still, still a great friend in college uh, who used to say to me, look, I would never lie to you, man. Unless I had to, <laughs> you know, I try, you know, when I can, I tell the truth and then, you know, sometimes things, but, but it's, but there's a, but it's, you know, what we have seen play out. I, I, and I get really serious at the end of the book, um, mm-hmm. inscribe this, this meeting that I dramatic meeting I had with him in the oval office, just, just, just this past fall, um, about the, the danger here. He has so frequently said things that are just flatly wrong on a, on, a, on a routine basis that a good chunk of this country will not believe anything that comes out of this White House. And he has also so repeatedly labeled real stories, fake news, and done so much to undermine uh, the 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 credibility of of the press now there have been mistakes the press as people like me have made that, that that have contributed to this true but he has so relentlessly uh tried to portray real reporting as fake news that you have the other you know nearly half the country or third to 40 percent of the country that won't believe what they see in a newspaper um, as Trump once said, I mean, very revealing, it, uh, there's a speech he gave to the veterans of foreign, foreign wars uh, where he said, what you are seeing, what you are reading is not what is happening. I mean, it's like, don't believe your own lying eyes. Um, and you get to a situation like where we are now, where there is a global pandemic, also all that is unfolding in the streets of our cities right now where you need to be able to believe what is you are reading in the newspaper or what you are hearing out of the White House because it may be a matter of life and death. Exactly. And uh, and he has undermined that. He has, he has waged what I call a war on truth. And it's – we're no longer, you know, calling Rick Riley the, the president of Sports Illustrated. We're no longer, you know, exaggerating the – glories of trump tower we are talking about something that affects people's lives i think that what has happened over the past six years or so because i think it started before is that what we used to have in this world and in this nation was a consensus reality it didn't matter if you watched nbc cbs or abc news back when i was a kid and walter cronkite was reporting on nasa uh, you believe them, and everybody believe operated from the same set of facts. We might disagree as to what the best plan was to to follow those facts, but we agreed on that that this was what was real. That has been effectively destroyed by one of the themes that that you that shows up often in your book is what's been called whataboutism. <laughs> Which right. is uh, uh, a very, you know, it, it's three card Monty with facts. Yeah, it, it's it's really, I think, a dire situation because exactly. if you cannot agree 
on the basic facts. We have a deeply divided country. We've had a deeply divided country for a long time. Um, this arguably is the the most serious, seriously divisive time uh, uh, in my lifetime. I was born in 1968, so in the time I can remember, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you cannot agree on the facts, you have no hope on overcoming those divisions. And that is where we are at. You have two different realities or multiple realities. And, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, I mentioned the famous quote, you know, former Senator Moynihan. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he said, uh, famously, you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. And that is where we are now, though. People... People have their own facts. I, I, you know, one you also talk. Uh, one of the other themes is, you know, the press as opposition party, which is something that Trump has pushed from the very beginning. And, and, and this is a, a phrase that you know uh, that comes from <laughs> the, the French Revolution and the off with their heads. Uh, era and, and we're not too far away from that when you look at what happened to Jamal Khashoggi I mean this seemed when that happened that seemed to me to be really a shot across the bow not at Jamal Khashoggi and not necessarily by uh, the Saudi Arabia but by the president himself at the American ex- uh, press that you know the idea that it can't happen here well uh, that's been pretty much annihilated. Well, I think that if you look at what we have seen play out over the past week and you see the arrest of a CNN reporter on live television covering, clearly covering and peacefully covering uh, a, a story, you see an Australian news crew here one block from the White House assaulted by park police as they try to clear a space in front of the white house. So the president can go out and pose for photos in front of St. John's church. I don't know if you saw that Mm. the, this Australian crew, the, the park police officer punches the camera operator in the face. And as he, as his colleague grabs him and they try to flee to get out of the way is what, the, the area that's being cleared, uh, the uh, the officer strikes the woman who he's, was with the camera operator with a baton. Um, and yeah. we've seen images like this, and we've seen, and, and there have been isolated incidents where where protesters have targeted uh, reporters as well. But this is what happens when you have a president uh, who is using the phrase "enemy of the people." And portraying the press as the source of the problems in our country, a free press. And it's a dangerous, volatile situation. I went in, I met with the president, as I alluded to, uh, in September of last year in the, um, in the Oval Office, beginning of September. It was not long after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton. And I... Uh, I told him that I was concerned that his rhetoric, the enemy of the people rhetoric, 
could be taken to heart by an unstable person and could end up being a very dangerous situation. And he told me, it's like he didn't quite comprehend what I was saying. He said, well, I hope people do take my words to heart because I truly believe the press is the enemy of the people, et cetera, et cetera. Now, he's not saying that he wants somebody to go out and violently attack the press. That is not what he is saying, but but that's the way his words the, – the risk is that that's the way his words are going to be heard. I mean how else – You know, if you truly take his words to heart, if you truly take him to literally mean what he is saying – um, then we're in a very, very dangerous uh, situation. I'm wondering, when you put together this book, one of the best things about reading it is, of course, all the things that you put in this book for the very first time. I'd like you to talk about some of those, but also talk about maybe some of the things that didn't quite make it or maybe things that have happened recently that you wish you could kind of beam into the book via uh, mental rays. Well, there there are certainly things I've been I've been writing, uh, as you can imagine, over the past uh, over the past several weeks. Uh, I've been keeping a very detailed daily journal and 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 notes. There, there have been some incredible moments um, during the course of the the pandemic first and what we have seen now, uh, since the, uh, since the killing of George Floyd. So there are certainly material that will at the very least make for, um, something I will add into a paperback version or another book, because there is, I feel like I've got a book's worth of material just over the past, I mean, call it the past three months, uh, since, since, since this, uh, since the pandemic really hit. But I, in terms of, the material that I learned about, uh, that, that, and, and look, I, every single chapter, I, I did not want to write about anything that people already knew. Mm-hmm. So it's if I'm writing all, about well-known it, events, mm-hmm. um, I'm doing it because I've got a different vantage point and I have new information or both. Um, so you see that in every, every chapter has something, something new. One thing that I think is especially relevant right now is I, I do a chapter on Charlottesville, which is obviously a very well-known very lots been written about Charlottesville probably the the low point of the president's first year in office when he went out and talked about very fine people being on both sides of the uh, unrest in Charlottesville and when one of those sides included neo-nazis and white supremacists Um, I went and deconstructed and talked to everybody who was around in those days um, around him. And I found, I, I uncovered a meeting that he had the day before he said his fateful remarks about very fine people on both sides and praising Confederate generals and all of that. Remember he did that at Trump tower. Mm-hmm. Um, I, he, he'd come back to the white house uh, the day before I, cause he, he was working at a Bedminster at the time cause it was the summer. Um, and he had a meeting in the residence of the white house and he was accompanied by John Kelly, who was his new chief of staff, Christopher Ray, who had just become the FBI director, uh, Tom Bossert, who was his Homeland Security Advisor on the National Security Council, and Jeff Sessions, who was his attorney general and was already heavily criticized because of the uh, of, of, of the recusal. So he was but he was but these were his top advisors. He was there to get a briefing on the killing of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. 
Um, and instead of the briefing, the president went on a uh, went on a rant. Um, it was almost verbatim, word for word, what he would say the following day. Um, and, a, and a moment that, you know, again, seen as the low point. And the striking thing, and I talked to just about everybody that was in the room uh, for that meeting. And I also was given notes by one of the people that was in attendance uh, who took notes. And so I've got contemporaneous notes. This is a very detailed reconstruction of what happened there and his, uh, you know, praise of the Confederates um, and his no sympathy is being expressed uh, uh, towards um, about Heather Heyer. He doesn't he doesn't kind of get into it. Uh, no condemnation of the white supremacists. Uh, I'm not saying that he supports them. I don't think he does, but he didn't see that as the issue. The issue that he saw as the big issue was that, you know, people didn't want the Confederate, uh, general statues to be taken down, didn't want Robert E. Lee's statue to be taken down and, and Stonewall Jackson. And, and he thought this was an outrage. And like, what are they going to do? Are they going to take Jefferson and Washington down next? And this is then these are very fine. You know, so he does the whole thing. And what I found very revealing about this episode is that not a single person in that room stood up and said, sir, the world has just seen images of white supremacists carrying tiki torches uh, in Charlottesville chanting Jews will not replace us. A woman who was protesting that was just killed when a white supremacist ran over her with his car. This is not the time to be praising the virtues of Confederate generals uh, or lauding the people that are protesting along the side of neo-Nazis. Nobody said that. Nobody said a word. And the other thing, just in terms of the atmospherics of this, this was, ironically, the president was sitting at a desk that was used by Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, as president, he was in the treaty room of the White House and the residence. And he gets up and he looks at a couple of the uh, of the uh, staffers that were standing in the back for this meeting and says, would you guys like to go see the Lincoln bedroom? And after that display, again, the words that would almost tank his presidency the following day when he says them in public, he brings them all in. And gives him a tour of the Lincoln bedroom and points to the desk where he says the Gettysburg Address was written. Now, I mean, it's, you know, we don't really know exactly where the Gettysburg Address was, but, he, but there's a copy of the Gettysburg Address there. And he, uh, he praises it. He goes on this, you know, long diatribe about how Lincoln was mistreated by the press. Um, but. That whole chapter, I mean, I, I, I think is so relevant to what we're, what we're seeing here when we talk about the president's fateful decision to walk across Lafayette Park and to go and stage a photo op in front of St. John's. Do you think any of his advisors told him, sir, this might not be the time uh, to clear out protesters in the stage a photo op? No. They didn't stop him or try to stop him in Charlottesville, and they didn't try to stop what happened here on Monday. The new book by Jonathan Carl is Front Row at the Trump Show. Thank you for speaking with me, Jonathan. Great. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. As I said, I 
I, I especially appreciate your your comments on the book because I, I, I there are probably there are very few people who read as many books as you do. So. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.